Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow would be my feedback. Revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, cash flow is reality. And I think we were very good at making paper profits. We were too focused on paper profits and not focused enough on cash flow. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby. And I'm really excited about today's episode because I get to interview Jonathan Coxon and Alex Elliott. John and Alex were the co-founders of Liquid Personnel, a business they started in July 2006 while still in their mid-twenties with an investment of just £3,000. They proceeded to build an incredibly successful business, approaching £100 million in revenue, 140 employees, multi-award winning recruitment agency, and... They sold the business for an undisclosed sum to ICS, which is Independent Clinical Services, in July 2016, exactly 10 years after they started. I was keen to catch up with them to understand how they achieved such rapid growth and give you a behind-the-scenes glimpse at what it takes to create a hugely successful recruitment business. John and Alex were really open shared lots of hard-won insight and really valuable advice about everything from attracting the right people in detail, like how they were able to hire really high caliber people. They had a whole system for doing that. They also share some of their mistakes, including the time they came dangerously close to going bust and how they turned that around. So without further ado, let's meet John and Alex. You're UK based, aren't you, Mark? Yeah, I live in Edinburgh. Oh, lovely. Where where are you from? I'm from Canada originally. You've got a lovely hybrid accent. (laughs) Thank you. It's a nice accent, isn't it? That's probably part of the appeal. When I met my wife and decided to follow her to Scotland, the Scottish accent was definitely a a factor. Yeah. Now, where are you guys both based? I'm based in Barcelona and Alex is in Rutland. We sort of went kind of different routes. So I, I, I commute to England for for work and, and spend a decent amount of my time in London, but I'm, I'm predominantly based in, in Barcelona. Love it. I'm excited to have you both on the show. You know, really interested to hear your story. I understand you guys started Liquid Personnel in 2006 and sold it 10 years later to ICS. You know, I'm just really interested to hear your journey, the highs and the lows, you know, learn some of the secrets to your success and some of the mistakes or, or, or learnings that you guys made along the way. Does that sound all right? That sounds great, Mark. Thank you for inviting us. Oh, my pleasure. In fact, I went for a run this morning before work. I live in a, an area where there's some woods out behind my house. And I listened to a, another podcast you guys did with Sean Anderson at Hoxo Media, the recruitment agency podcast, yeah. which was really, really interesting and, and got me even more motivated to talk to you guys. So listen, I'm excited to hear about your your exit, but let's start at the very beginning. Can you tell me about the really early days at Liquid when you guys were just starting out? Yeah, sure. I mean, even kind of, even before that kind of first day of of starting, I think Alex and I, we worked together at actually a a competitor of Liquid's and we both have have a differing memory of how we sort of started talking about setting up together. But I think the, the key kind of thing Really, when we when we did start talking about it, was that we clearly had shared values and shared shared aspirations, and you know the mix of our kind of skill sets was 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 a strong one. So you know we spent a bit of time planning and you know getting things in in order to get things moving. But we we had three thousand pounds to start the business with. It was negligible. So there was the kind of like pasta and tomato ketchup moment, you know, for 
a, a few months just while we were getting moving. And we we started the business in Suffolk, and we actually used the we actually shared we shared a desk in the storeroom of Alex's father's office. He was kind enough to let us squat for over a year. So you know, it was real kind of like it was really tight early days, and and we. Really, the first year was just about surviving, and it, it was about you know getting some money in and starting to build those client relationships, and and really just about getting some money in the bank and building to the point where we could actually go for a bit of growth rather than it just being two guys sharing a desk. Wow, that's a great story. You didn't even have your own desk each; you had to literally share a desk. My dad definitely regretted it, Mark. So um, he's a quantity surveyor. Okay. So although he, he was happy to help out, I think his work day is very structured and quiet. And it's about organization and looking at data and understanding numbers. And then he had the two of us in the next door room on the phone a lot. Let's put it that way. So it was a very busy, noisy, raucous office compared to um, probably what my father was used to when he lent it to us. Amazing. Probably why you put us in the storeroom, right? <laughs> yeah. have, have you got, guys got a picture of that? Like your first, your first office and uh, all the stuff. I wish we did. Actually, we. Uh, I guess we were very forward-looking. You know, right. it would be lovely to have those things kind of to look back and reflect on. But no, it was always on to the next thing. Okay. You know? So we 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 uh, we moved offices about six or seven times. You know, in, in ten years, just due to the rate of growth of the business. And I think I've got photos of about two offices. Okay. I think that were the last two. You know, so yeah. So unfortunately, you not. said that you guys knew you wanted to work together because you had shared goals and shared values. Can you speak a little bit about what those were? Yeah, sure. So I think from day one, we, we talked about wanting to build something of scale. We wanted to talk about creating that. We, we talked about creating value and we talked about an exit. So we were clearly from the beginning, we were clearly aligned with regards to building something of scale, of high value that if we continued down the same path we'd probably look to exit at some point and then the values was really more about who we were as individuals how we wanted to manage how we wanted to lead how we got on with each other what we bought into about each other but also the types of individuals we wanted to work with about buying into those types of people that genuinely you could form a relationship with and believe in and support through their growth. So yeah, the the clear goal was important and also the fact that we had very clear guidelines as to the type of individuals we wanted to bring into the business and help us drive the growth forward. Amazing. And what was that type of individual that you were looking for that would reflect what you guys stand for and you know the sort of people you wanted to surround yourself with? There's a few ways to skin the cat, isn't there? But our approach was to was very much to focus on people with potential. So we hired graduates and but predominantly people with existing sales experience to basically bring them in at ground level as trainee consultants and really support them through their growth and you know sort of mold them into the best consultants they could really be. So we looked for people who were normally a bit of a track record in sales, a bit of a grounding. People who obviously worked really hard and, and could kind of evidence that people with a bit of backbone, the ability to build long-term relationships is really is really important, of course. Someone who's conscientious. We wanted people with good values, people who were going to be honest and, and trustworthy. Humble confidence was something we always we've always really mm. wanted to. So we we want people who are assertive. We want people who are confident. We want people who back themselves and believe in themselves, but. I think especially within recruitment and when you're hiring, we looked for high performance salespeople, as John's reference. So I think there was always a fine line between getting people who had the right type of confidence 
that was extremely important, especially when you're going to be developing someone into a new role. So I think it's about ensuring you're getting people who are brought into training, development and coaching and learning. And, and actually, if you look at how the business grew and developed, we started off with a bunch of trainees and, and those people, you know, by the time we, we sold the business, uh, I think just over 140 heads from memory, something like that. Every single management position in that company, apart from three, were filled by people who we brought up through the ranks, both in sales roles and non-sales roles. So there were a couple of senior roles we just had to fill because unfortunately we didn't have the kind of the required skill set within the business. So we had to bring people in from outside. But like our go-to place was absolutely, can we promote someone into this role? Can we support someone's development so they can grow and develop into those roles? You know, and, and giving that opportunity to people in the business was, was so powerful because, you know, ultimately people want that kind of opportunity. People want to grow. If you hire the right people, they want to grow, they want to develop, they want to move towards those kind of senior roles and, and you retain those people and get their loyalty. And um, it's actually one of the joys of building a recruitment agency, right? What has made you guys successful is that focus on hiring the right people, but then developing them, having a career path for them and promoting them from within. I'd like to return to that because it, it is so key. Before we do that, can we just talk more about the, the early days? So like you guys had a shared goal. You knew you wanted to scale something and to sell it. Was this written down? Like, did you have a strategic plan or was it just sort of something you'd talked about? How well developed was this uh, goal? Yeah, actually, it continued to develop over time. So I guess we both had a number, you know, just thinking really kind of big picture. We both we both had a, a number of what we want to, wanted to achieve financially, but that, that number, it grew over time when we realized what we could actually achieve within the business. We did start off with a business plan and we primarily did a business plan because we thought we would need it to take to the the uh, invoice discounting company to basically get our finance approved. And we went to a number of invoice discounting companies. I mean, we spent like three weeks writing this business plan in my mum's hall. Very grateful to both our parents for their, uh, yeah, <laughs> for the free space up. We took it to these financing companies and they didn't even look at it and they approved our finance. So at first we were kicking ourselves for spending so much time writing this really detailed, broad plan. But actually it was it was invaluable to us. Did it take us from day one to selling the business after 10 years? No, no, it didn't like in, in, in massive detail, but it, it mapped out the short term and, and it kind of gave us a kind of skeleton framework of the further years in order to kind of get to our, our longer term goal. I like it. So you had this business plan to, I think you guys were pretty young. What, what ages were you when you started the business? I think I was 25, 26. And John was a year, John, John, I think you're a year younger than me. So yeah. Wow. Okay. So two young guys, you have this big goal. You've got a number in your head that you want to achieve financially. You've written this plan. Talk me through like, what were the early days like that sort of first year developing liquid? I think first and foremost, they were highly sales orientated. So yeah, there's a lot of planning that went in at the beginning, but the reality was your first 12 months in recruitment is about survival, right? It's it's about surviving. It's about putting money in the bank. It's about building up a bit of a war chest. So we always had the, you know, going back to that previous point, we always had the plan to scale. So first and foremost, we needed financial backing to be able to do that. Neither of us came with a huge amount of money to the table. So we knew we had to be extremely focused on generating a number which was going to give us the financial backing to be able to really scale at the speed and build the momentum that we wanted to effectively which was fast so effectively it was 12 hour days on the phone 
first and foremost. And that meant starting at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. And then I think we'd finish eight, eight nine o'clock at night on the phone and then we'd do our admin. So that, that was probably a typical day, Monday to Friday. And then on Saturday, we'd be catching up with probably some urgent calls that we couldn't do during the week and then catching up on more delightful aspects again of the admin and the planning for the following week. It's no surprise you've been successful if you were willing to put in that level of commitment and sacrifice to achieving your goal. How, how long did you keep that up for? Well, we moved to Manchester after uh, 12 months. So when you say how long did you keep that up for, I think if you're talking about work ethic and, and commitment to the long term goal, I think we were always very focused. And I think we always kept up a comparable level of effort. But you talk about sacrifice. Is it really a sacrifice if you enjoy what you do, if you have a clearly defined goal, if you're working towards something which you're inherently driven towards? I think we thoroughly enjoyed that first 12 months. Awesome. And I, I think that the hard work that went along with it was something we were more than prepared to do. But yes, there is an element of sacrifice. But also, if you're particularly focused on what you want to achieve and you're going towards it, you should hopefully it's not going to be too much of a sacrifice. It's such an exciting thing to do to start your first kind of your first real business. So it was intense. And those two those two AM sort of or whatever time it was in the morning in you know, invoicing days were, you know, I was glad I was glad to see the back of them when we got a financial uh, manager on board. But yeah, it, you know, it's <laughs> we, we probably did a lot of it wrong as well. Oh dear, yeah. <laughs> due, due to tiredness. Starting invoicing at midnight on a Monday probably wasn't the best idea, maybe from a, um, an accuracy perspective. That, that's another story. <laughs> so we have a bit of context. You guys already had experience in the sector that you were recruiting in, right? You already knew what you were doing, more or less. We did, yeah. So we were both successful billing managers within that sector, which I think is 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 important and kind of de-risks it a bit from a personal perspective as well. Starting a business, there's a hell of a lot to learn. You know, taking that step from a, a kind of billing manager role to a founder and business owner, there's, you know, a lot of unknowns there and a lot of learning to do. Um, so kind of taking a, a step into a different market at the same time would be really challenging. It's not just the unknowns, it's the unknown unknowns. <laughs> I think we probably both thought we knew a bit more than we did when we started. So, you know, there's a benefit to that. But obviously, I think we, we quickly picked up on some of the stuff as the business grew mm. that definitely we needed to focus in on and actually ensure that we had the right um, capability to be able to go beyond just two guys smashing the phones and, um, you know, billing as, as much as we could. What were some of those unknown unknowns that looking back, you realize how much of a learning curve it was? Well, the whole financial management piece, to be honest, I mean, for, for example, we set up a factoring facility f- to facilitate the, you know, the payment of our invoices and we mismanaged it in all, in all honesty. And I think we said, you might have heard in, in that other podcast, we literally almost went bust because we weren't effectively managing, managing the, the collection of debt and, and reconciling things in an effective manner. So that was certainly a big one. Another one, like look at the amount of recruitment agencies that start up every year, like over 8,000 recruitment agencies start up every year. A lot of them fail and some of them get to kind of around sort of 10 heads and then they get a bit stuck. And then some grow like crazy. You know, obviously, obviously there's a kind of mix in there, but there's, there's a lot of recruitment agencies that get stuck around kind of 10 heads, something like that. Less, I would or, say. Or, or, yeah, maybe eight or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So probably there's a bit of a correlation between the sort of the, the number of people that people manage when they work in a recruitment business as a billing manager, you know, compared to the number that they get a bit stuck at, mm-hmm. you know, when they start up their own business. So I'm not saying that's the only reason why businesses get stuck at that kind of number of heads. But, you know, ultimately, it's, it's a very different skill set to grow a business to kind of 
10 heads as it is to grow a business to 50 and then to to 100 you know there's that kind of scaling element you know certainly in our next venture as well we're we're looking to support people with Brilliant. I know that's really interesting. It is a different skill set. So you guys are having to develop all the time yourselves as well as as leaders, as managers. Can I just double click on this period where you mismanaged the finance and, and almost went bust and, and get a little more clarity around that? Like if you could go back and having learned from all the you know things that you've accomplished as well as the mistakes you've made over the last decade, what would you do differently? Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow would be would be my feedback. So there's that was what's that cheesy saying? Um, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, cash flow is reality. And I think we were very good at making paper profits. And maybe in the early stages we were too focused on paper profits and not focused enough on cash flow. So it's about ensuring your strategic plan is aligned tightly with your financial modeling. You can have the best strategic plan in the world, but in reality, if it's not aligned with your financial modeling, it's going to be a poor plan. It's about ensuring that you're growing at the right rate. It's ensuring about that you have risk management and self-regulating measures in there to ensure that you're not overreaching from a growth perspective. It's a nice problem to have growing too fast, but it's a very real one as well, which can have some pretty dire consequences. So for us, yeah, there was an element of mismanagement first and foremost, but I think also it was about ensuring that we had uh, an aligned strategic plan with a financial modeling system. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, we were borrowing money when we sold the business. You know, it's, it's something that you, you have to manage, particularly if you are if you're a high growth contract business, you're always going to be borrowing, which is one of the reasons why a sale is so attractive, right? In, in contract agreement, because particularly if you're high growth, it's very hard to take large chunks of money out because you're mm. facilitating that growth through your borrowing. So it's something you have to manage right through the journey. Interesting. So in speaking about managing growth and, and knowing how fast to grow and, and so on, how did you know that the time was right to start hiring and expanding the business? We started slow, in all honesty. And, and this, is, this is probably, some, someone asked us both individually a, a few months ago, what would you do differently next time? And the first thing that we both said was we'd grow the business faster. That maybe sounds slightly flippant, but in, in all honesty, having that effective cash management in place early on would have allowed us to do that. So we could have grown the business faster, but we we took in the first kind of, as we started with basically nothing. And then, you know, the first couple of years, the profits were relatively low. It was really kind of like year three when we had the ability to start investing a lot more heavily. We had some triggers in place around hiring new consultants early on. But to be honest, you know, if we were managing things effectively, we would have been able to hire more aggressively. That's the truth, you know. Wow. We were a high growth business. I mean, we got into the Sunday Times fast track a couple of times, you know, which was great. But but we could have grown that business quicker if we had sort of managed the financial side of things more tightly and, and if we were more aware at that time of what we had available to spend. And if we were managing the cash more effectively, we could have probably maybe not doubled our growth in the first few years, but we could have certainly ramped it up. And it's the quality of what you do as well. Sorry, just to jump in, but I was recently rereading some of our, um, for instance, our internal interviewing structure and templates when we first started off. And I just came across a document that for some reason was just like stashed away in a folder from like literally from 2007 or eight. And I just thought to myself, I winced a little bit. 
because look it was okay but the reality was you get to a certain point where you forget what it was like when you started out and the lack of evidence-based decision making it was more about a gut feel there was a lack of science and there was a lack of evidence-based stuff to it so there was just one example of something which has come on such leaps and bounds over the course of 10 years we went from having what is probably quite a decent um, approach to internal recruitment early on whereas as time went on that became so much more advanced in its techniques and approach that the quality that was coming out the other end was so much higher that if we were to go back in time and be able to do it everything again a we'd do it a lot faster but driving that would be the the higher quality that we'd be able to implement from experience over the years alex if we can double click on that because i suspect that is one of the key constraints to recruitment companies growing is in fact when i i, I probably talked to i don't know 20 30 recruitment business owners a week and ask them, you know, what their goals are, what their challenges are. And repeatedly, I hear what's slowing our growth is we can't find enough good people, ironically. And it sounds like that's something you guys developed systems for that that were very, very effective in order to get that kind of growth trajectory. Before I ask you about the details around that, can you map out what was the growth? So it, like year one is two people. And then when you finished, it was 140. What were the milestones between those two points? That's a good question, isn't it, Alex? <laughs> a really good question. Okay, passing over to me. Um, I've got no idea, Mark. No, in all, in all seriousness, we, we did get asked this again recently. And the truth is we struggled a little bit. And we, what we came up with, we reckon we got up to about 30. I reckoned, and I'm not sure John was so bought into this answer, but I reckoned at the end of year four, around that point, we probably had about 30 heads. And that included billing and non-billing staff. So we had to build a efficient back office structure to support. We were always keen on building silos and playing to people's strengths. So our business model was about supporting our, our sales guys, our recruiters to be able to recruit and then giving them the necessary support in the background. That worked for the model that we worked in. So it wasn't necessarily all billers, but my rambling answer to your short question around year four, I reckon John thinks probably a little bit less. I reckon about 30 people. And then it's not going to be a linear growth from that point to 140 heads year on year. And I think the reason going back to the previous point was you're building processes and systems that can support more people. You're getting better retention because those systems are more effective. But most importantly, you've probably got pillars of leadership in the business who you can build around. So again, it's about getting exceptional decision making at the beginning of the process with regards to who you hire putting the right time and development and training into those individuals to support them become exceptional in what they do, making sure the right people are progressing into management and leadership roles. That is often not your best billers. And I think we probably like a lot of people made, made that mistake early on. A lot of our strongest billers were probably the first at the queue to go into management roles. And actually over time, that, that shouldn't necessarily be the case. And then once you've got those right individuals, it's getting the right people on the bus at the beginning, right? So you get the right people in, you give them the right training and development, and then you can build around those individuals. So again, I'm rambling a bit, but in answer to your question, the speed with which we grew, knowing what we know now, really, really ramped up once we had exceptional people in place that we could build around and give the right support and structures to enable them to do that. Is that a really random politician's nope, answer to your question? There's a lot of detail in there that um, I'd like to tease out. So actually, let me just go back one step and make sure that everybody understands the business. You guys, I believe, were placing contract social workers. Is that right? Yes. Your niche was purely social workers. You didn't have other other business 
areas or when, when we sold the business we, we were the market leader in that particular space and that was where we started at but if we sort of take that journey from the start so we were a big big believers in the approach kind of inch wider mile deep approach so we identified the northwest of england as a really interesting entry point to the social work recruitment market where there weren't a million established players yeah there was no one really dominant in that space and we believed in that approach so much we moved to the north of england once we had enough money to really start start growing the business and and you know from alex's dad's storeroom to an office in in manchester so we very much focused on that kind of local market in the northwest and then once we had built up a team who were delivering really well in that space once we got some critical mass in the business we started to expand out both geographically and then in vertical markets within our core market it was really only when we were sort of there or thereabouts in terms of being the market leader in that space did we then start to branch out into other kind of complementary areas within healthcare recruitment and then sort of lastly in the last kind of couple of years we set up a um, an outsourcing division in the social work market which was actually a fantastic division as well, which was much higher margin. You know, a challenge to get right, but we had some great people working in that division. So we, we, uh, yeah, we nailed it. And that was actually one of the two of the key things. Obviously, being a market leader in social work, first and foremost, was, was very interesting to our buyer, but also having, having that kind of that outsourcing piece was really interesting to them because it was high value and there was some really sort of strong IP within that that they could roll out across their their other brands. By outsourcing, do you mean that you employed the social workers and then contracted them out to clients or? We identified local authorities that were really kind of struggling and we provided an outsourcing solution to them to basically take big chunks of their work off them, manage it through in a quality and timely manner, and then deliver it back to them completed. It's, it's a really tricky one to get right. It is because yeah. a lot of recruitment agencies, you know, have looked at that and, and seen the kind of margins that you can achieve with it and jump to it. But you really have to have a quality approach. You really have to have a long-term approach. And, you know, you have to deliver. And sometimes even when it might cost you a little bit more than you thought to do so, you know. So, um, but it was, I mean, it was it was great. So, we, so when we sold the business, I think we were working in social work. We sold the core market. We had a couple of other markets within healthcare. And then we had the outsourcing piece as well. The business was really positioned in lots of different markets, you know, for growth in lots of different markets. Wow. Okay, cool. And then the business model were your teams made up of 360 degree recruiters or did you have split desks? How, how was it structured? It changed as time went on, Mark. So uh, I get asked the question a lot about how should you structure your desk and am I doing it the right way? And look, the reality is I think it's really market dependent. So early days our market was more 360 orientated and as time went on and more rpos and msps whatever you want to call them came into the space the model became more resource-led rather than job-led so the model changed with it and then we had separate divisions within our contract and permanent so we didn't have dual desk for permanent contracts i think Typically, that's a challenge. That's one area where probably I would, I'd probably go against what I've just said a little bit and say maybe that's a challenge for recruiters to be able to manage those two things effectively alongside each other. But uh, yeah, in answer to your question, it changed a little bit from from probably more 360 to more one. Interesting. So coming back to the original starting point here for this 
section of the conversation, which was on hiring the right people. I think that was one of the keys that you said to your success. What was your model? How did you achieve that consistently? I think first and foremost, you've got to have an incredibly clear profile of the type of individual you're looking to hire. And that sounds a lot easier than actually it is. So we built a scorecard model. We had a a crystal clear way of assessing eight different factors that we were looking at. We had clear clarification as to what each of those factors meant and what it looked like, what good great looked like, what great looked like. We hired based upon values. We hired based upon obviously our company values, what the person was going to bring to the table. We had clear ways of assessing the strength of a hire. Is that person going to increase the average on the sales floor was a number one question. We used really scientific tools. So it was about psychometric profiling for us. We used those and worked with closely with, with that type of modeling. We engaged a number of people through the process. And I think we were really, really good, actually. One thing that I think a lot of recruitment companies is like, like they do with their, maybe when they're facing outside, they oversell and under deliver. And I think we were really good at actually doing the anti-sell and saying, look, this is what the reality of a career in recruitment looks like if they were trainees. And these are the pros of our business, but these are also the cons. These are our expectation levels. This is what we expect from you when you come into the business. These are the things you're going to be accountable for. So I think we were very good at bringing people into the business who had a crystal clear understanding of actually what the role looked like and what the expectations and standards of performance were within the business. So they didn't come in and get a shock or as much of a shock probably as anyone would get going into recruitment from outside of the industry. So we focused in on internal recruitment to such a degree that I felt by the end, we had an incredibly comprehensive and holistic way of being able to scientifically make good decisions. We left no stone unturned, you know, I mean, almost every possible route that we could possibly generate internal candidates we used it and trialed it and if it worked we continued with it you know and i think when we when we sold the business we had a team of was it three people in internal recruitment i I can't really understate the importance that we gave it particularly in the service industry really there's lots of important things and lots of keys to success aren't there but you know is there anything really more important than hiring exceptional people i mean i I don't think there is you know so we, we we gave it that importance it is tricky early on because you're an unproven quantity you know like you're one or two people in a in an office trying to tell people why they should come to you as an unproven quantity rather than an established business. So you also have to have that kind of hearts and minds piece and, and you know, you have to have a compelling, authentic vision to present to people in order to encourage the best prospects into your company. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Tell me about the scorecard. What were your eight keys that you're looking for? I wouldn't want to give away too much at this point, Mark. We still use a comprehensive scorecard model with all of the companies that we invest in. So it's something the guys buy into massively. So I'm not necessarily going to disclose every aspect of that, but it's probably not rocket science. So I think it's more about the theory of how you put it together rather than what the outcome is. So define with what's going to be, what does great look like in your business? What are the attributes of someone who's great? What do they bring to the table on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis? What does that look like? And then go back from there. So that's probably a good starting point, which I suggest people look at. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to say grit is going to be one determining factor that's on a scorecard. I would suggest of looking at anyone who's coming to the business. So there's one that we'd look for. We'd always look for resilience stroke grit. And we would have a very clear way of assessing around that. 
and then being able to produce evidence to support our opinion of how gritty someone was. And then we would rank that person. And then at the end of that process, we would do that on a number of different factors in intricate detail. And at the end, we would have a score for that individual, which would give us an overview of what we believe based on our evidence based decisions is that person's total score relating to their suitability to a role in recruitment. So, again, I'm giving you a bit of a politician's answer, but. It's also dependent on the business, right? So, every, you know, every recruitment business will have, you know, a, a, a different strategy and, and different and potentially different values and the people that come in need to fit the values and the strategy of the individual businesses so you know you, you'll see a lot of correlation won't you you know among successful recruiters in in multiple businesses but you know that it very much should be sort of done from the ground up you know you start with the strategy first right before you define the profile of the individuals that are going to deliver that strategy the things that i looked for when i first started interviewing people 10 years ago smart personality driven now it made me chuckle and i winced a little bit because i thought to myself look i I was a pretty good internal recruiter i could i I had a reasonably strong hit rate i i worked off gut and my gut was pretty good but actually when you break those three things down smart personality driven what on earth do those three things mean so i think it's being able to define the characteristics you're looking at and really have an aligned vision within your entire business of the type of individual you bring in. So what does smart mean? Is that emotional intelligence? Is that general intelligence? If it's general intelligence, what aspects of general intelligence are you looking for? Is it reasoning? You know, all those different aspects that you might get in a psychometric test. If it's personality, what does that mean? It's your ability to engage with candidates, clients. It's the ability to engage internally. Again, psychometric profiling is really, really interesting. You know, how how does someone balance from a personality perspective? What are their core traits? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? What does drive mean? You know, so again, it's I think it's saying why is that important? And then going, all right, well, now that I've got the answers to that, why is that important? You just keep working along that process until you get to the answers at the end, which probably give you the best understanding of what your business is about and the type of individuals you want to bring in. I'm glad you said that grit was one of your kind of key things you're looking for. That's why I named this podcast The Resilient Recruiter, because I really feel that of all the attributes, you know, there's people with lots of different personalities who can be successful at this. I don't think there's a right personality for recruiting. But definitely one attribute that is required across the board is resilience, for sure. Have you read Grit by Angela Duckworth? Yeah. I'm just reading it at the moment. I've got to say, it's in front of me. And that's why the first thing that popped into my head when you asked the question, well, I'll give you this one. It's Grit. And um, no, I'd recommend that book to anyone. I'm only halfway through it, but I'm really enjoying it. And that talks about, it's not just recruitment. It talks about the military. It talks about academia, all these different environments. And the number one indicator of someone's success is their grit. It's interesting you say that regarding reading and, and that sort of thing. One thing I liked that you guys said earlier was humble confidence. You wanted to hire people who were coachable, were willing to learn, wanted to improve, and so on. Is that something you guys still do is like reading and you know looking at business books and, and that sort of thing? Constantly. We're pretty hardcore readers. And in reality, look, how many of your concepts and ideas are brilliantly inventive and purely out of your own mind not that many (laughs) from my experience 99% of my good ideas come from actually reading and thinking about the things in different industries and services that relate to recruitment and how we can we can bring that into recruitment so reading is incredibly important for me but also you know going back to internal recruitment it's about hiring people who are smart enough to have their own independent thoughts Mm -hmm. but also have strong enough character to change their opinion Mm. based upon evidence changing etc etc and the facts changing so 
that that's super important for us. You want you want you want to work with smart people who have their own independent opinion, but you also want them to have the strength of character to not just dig their heels in when other people present other ideas, and then then you get a really collaborative learning environment where everyone contributes and you come to really good decisions. Brilliant. Just a, a minor question in the grand scheme of things, but are there particular books that had a bigger influence on you guys as you were building the business than than others? Any that stand out? Personally, I'd recommend Good to Great and Built to Last by Jim Collins. And I'd recommend In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters. Yeah. Classic. I think from a business perspective, they were massive for me. I, I massively bought into those. From a sales perspective, How to Win Friends and Influence People, mm-hmm. I think, um, uh, is it Influence by Chiel That's a great book. Yeah. The, um, the mm-hmm. one that I used to recommend to people. Yeah, great book. Leadership and Management, The Score Takes Care of Itself. I love that book. Absolutely love that book. It's almost like an art of war, isn't it? Of business that I love the, you know, the, the sort of structure of it is great. It's a great kind of a great book to read that before you're uh, setting up a business. What was the title? I missed that. Leadership and management. Yeah. If, if, if it was leadership and management, I was just thinking of different sort of, um, what I do is I just get like, I just figure out what well, I want to learn about more of this. And then yes. I just buy like half a dozen to a dozen books on that particular subject that are recommended and just work my way through them. So it was just one aspect that I thought of management and leadership and the score takes care of itself is a, is an absolute. Oh, the score takes care of itself. That's amazing. But by the guy who did the, um, the 49ers. Bill Walsh, is it? That's it. Bill Walsh. Re- recommend Harvard Business Review stuff. So yes. you know, I, I love that. That's really, really helpful. So you can buy those books on and they'll give you 10 different chapters on the same subject of, again, as an example, management and leadership, whatever that might mean. And then you'll get 10 different academic. That makes it sound really boring, but it's not <laughs> um, 10 different chapters on, on what, what makes a great leader. It's interesting because of the entrepreneurs I've met in this industry who have grown really successful firms they do tend to be constantly learning and taking in new input and reading business books more so than the people who are kind of stuck at that 10 person, five to 10 person level and kind of plateaued there. So I do think it's, there's, there's something to that. Can I ask you guys, you said you left no stone unturned in relation to finding really, really good people. What were some of the best avenues for you that you kind of relied upon to keep your pipeline of your talent pipeline full first of all we treated internal recruitment as a sales function within the business and managed it in that in that kind of way right so we had a team of salespeople who were building relationships with people over an extended period of time so we were building pipelines of potential superstars you know because it's not it might not always be the right time when you speak to someone at first but as you know with recruitment in general you know it's about keeping in touch with people and building those relationships so we literally what were the best kind of avenues i mean we use all the traditional stuff like the sort of the kind of cv databases and we, we always use rectorex even though they were expensive but we wanted to hire the best people on the market so i think one in three of our hires or one in four of our hires was still rec to rec even when we had a team of kind of four people running internal recruitment obviously referrals we had an inf- internal referral scheme so that's a really good point so that that had a huge amount of success for us and we use that really proactively everyone has those internal schemes but a lot of the ones that i look at just aren't fit for purpose whereas we spent a lot of time working on that but we had a clear bd strategy so again it was it's like any sales function of the business what's your bd strategy who are your target clients how do you map those clients out who are the decision makers within that process who is it you need to be targeting and then building a pipeline with those individuals. So internal recruitment is like any sales function. You're not just going to approach someone necessarily. And on that first bite, they're going to go, yeah, great. I'll come and talk to you. So again, it's about having a long-term view of account development. So who are your key accounts? Where do you want to develop them? Map them out. Go after those guys. 
and build up a relationship with them over a period of time so that by the point where they were saying, you know what, I think I've tapped out the opportunity here, I should consider my options, you were the first person they were going to pick up the phone and speak to. Something that was great, actually, was Alex mentioned that we we took a really proactive approach to internal uh, to referrals. The point that we did that was when someone just just came into the business. So, you know, we'd, we'd hire a new trainee and in the first week. We would sit down with them or a sales manager in the business would sit down and say, right, we're obviously looking to hire more exceptional people like yourself. Let's like work through who you know who could be interesting. And obviously, we've got the referral bonus in place. So and we'd literally talk through each of their roles. So if they were in a sales role, you know, let's say they're in three sales roles, who were the top 10 salespeople in each of those three in each of those three companies? So. Internal referral schemes, what generally happens is people get told about it and they say it's 250 quid and then you get one or two a year or something like that. You know, that's what happens in most businesses. But we got a hell of a lot of people because we were really structured in our approach to it. And if you can get, you know, 20 referrals from every new starter in your business, you know, and you have 15 new starters in, in a year or 20, 20 new starters in a year, and they're qualified referrals because they're the best salespeople in their previous roles, then that's a great little tip. Obviously, if people, if you're hiring grads, it's a bit more speculative, but you can take the same kind of approach. You know, I think we all know as recruiters that referrals are one of the best sources of candidates, right? You know, how seriously do we kind of take that into internal recruitment is, a, is definitely a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. If I hear one more person say, we run a referral scheme, you can get £500, who are you going to give me? I think I'm going to tear what little hair out I have left. <laughs> Meaning. People need to up their game to say the right, least. Right, right. This is gold, by the way. So thanks for sharing this, guys. This um, referral strategy, would the sales manager then follow up with those referrals or would the individual themselves reach out to the individuals in their network? It would just depend on the situation. Okay. You know, sometimes people wouldn't want to do it themselves. Sometimes it would be the right thing for them to do. It's just dependent. Okay. All right. Great. So, I mean, the overall philosophy here is you treated it like a sales function in the business. So you gave it as much thought, commitment and dedication as you would to acquire new clients or filling jobs for your clients or what have you. You gave it that same level of consideration. It's more of a philosophy a shift than anything rather than mm. the companies are so focused on just filling jobs for their customers and they never get around to really focusing on their own hiring needs are the ones that are going to plateau, right? If you hire average people, you'll end up with an average business. You know, if you hire exceptional people, it's an oversimplification, mm. but it's, it's. I mean, seriously, what, what, you know. There's a nice cheesy thing about A players hire A people, B players hire C okay. people. So it's about having that mindset again, that you're ensuring you're, you're not just going to go with what's acceptable. You're going to go with what's exceptional and that every single person you bring into the business should be raising the average on the sales floor. If you continually do that, you're going to continually build a better sales for you know super and, and not just sales as well non-sales as well it's, it's about all, all fun absolutely businesses. what was the sort of ratio of experience versus rookies that you would you would take on we took on all rookies we there, i think that we probably hired about two or three experienced recruiters in 10 years probably wow okay so even through the rector x you were getting referred people who wanted to get into recruitment rather than yeah. and what was your philosophy on that why did you decide to go that route we wanted to be able to train people up ourselves and give them the best possible support and training and guidance in in that formative time in their career so and actually we, we did hire some people i say two or three experienced people i think we did hire a few people that were had started in another recruitment agency within the first within sort of 12 months you know so there were sort of uh, people like that actually we did hire a few people like that 
but yeah, predominantly it was, it was, we wanted to grow our own, so to speak, just purely for that. You know, you train people well, you get people working in, in good kind of practice and, and processes. You, and there's a sort of loyalty thing there as well. You know, we're, we're both strong believers in having a, a good core of rookies within a business. It's not the only way to do it, but if you've got a whole business full of hired guns, then what's, you know, how, how do you build the culture? Obviously that's, it, it makes it more challenging, you know, super important to have that, that high performance culture in place. There's no question that it worked well for you. You guys were Sunday Times, Fast Track, uh, lead table of 100 private companies with fastest growing sales. You were UK's best workplace, Sunday Times, 100 best small companies to work for. You obviously built that culture and built that performance culture. And the fact, uh, what I think I was really impressed with is that the people who moved into the management and leadership roles within the business largely were promoted from within. You said your training was exceptional. What did it involve? Oh, that's a big question. I don't know if we've got time for that. So look, our, our training and development, again, it's a little bit like internal recruitment. You know, I think one of our favorite favorite sayings is, um, is excellence comes from mastery of the fundamentals and looking at training and development. It was just building something from the ground up. So it was about incremental learning and development. It was about giving people as many tools to be successful as possible it was about, at the same time, making it as simple and concise as possible. It was about giving people initial induction training, but also what alongside that, ensuring that a lot of it was practical role play and coaching orientated in real time. It was so it's about linking up theory and practice, I guess. It was about having training and development throughout someone's career rather than the typical thing, which is you get a week or two at the beginning and then you get stuck on a phone and then you never see a, a you know, you never see training again, which is, you know, quite typical sometimes in recruitment businesses. So yeah. all the way through our business, every single time you wanted to progress to the next level, you had to pass relevant training modules to support that growth and demonstrate that you had the skills to be able to take the next step. We had a, you had to pass tests. So at the end of the day, not only did you have to be able to demonstrate that you could do stuff in theory, but you actually had to be able to back that up. We linked it to the REC. So we actually had formal accreditation, which, again, people really, really bought into because they felt quite understandably they were adding real credibility to their situation as a, as a recruiter. We had kind of a mixed media of training resources, didn't we? So we had the classroom stuff. People, everyone had their workbooks. People had... You know, we, we encourage people to take responsibility for their own development. So we there was kind of homework and, and that kind of thing. We we had a series of training videos that people could watch at their desks on specific things. So if people were struggling with referrals, they could click a three minute training video or something like that, just literally at their desk to have a bit of a refresh on referrals. It is really important that that you don't overload people too much early on you know if you stick someone in a classroom for two weeks and then stick them on the sales floor and think that they're trained you're wrong you know they're just they're, they're not it's and as Alex said it's about taking that step-by-step approach and having the classroom stuff kind of really joined up to what they're doing on the sales floor yeah and the support that they get on the sales floor as well so people were you know people were trained up really well in the classroom but then they were supported really well by properly trained people on the sales floor data analysis and our reporting tools were really sophisticated as well so i think we were very good also at performance management so we could read someone's monthly performance in a snapshot and we could identify training need reasonably quickly based upon that so let's say i don't know someone's second interview to final interview conversion rate was low there's an issue potentially there around interview process and interview management so 
don't know why I picked that as an example. It's an example. If someone's headhunting ratio was low, again, that would suggest that someone's ability to pitch their script, the templates they work through, how they're adding value, all the objections and rebuttals that might come with it, all of those things that go into building an effective training development program. It's also about being able to real life understand where individuals have strengths and also where they need to develop. So, uh, yeah, basically our data and our reporting meant that we could get a snapshot of the business as a whole, their effectiveness in doing those different things, but also the individuals, we could zero in on them and give them one-on-one support as well as business support. Amazing. You're saying all the right things. I totally get why you guys have been as successful as you were. May I ask, what were the videos that you got people to watch? We created them. There was probably about 30 of them. We worked with a training provider who supported us in putting them together. So effectively, what we did was we worked with a training provider who was highly skilled within recruitment. We bought into them. We went through an assessment process. We chose one particular training provider. And then with them, we got them to personalize and tailor what they do into our marketplace so that we had those fallback training videos. Brilliant. Which were geared towards the specifics of our of our marketplace and, and our, our sales approach. I think that's powerful. I've actually partnered with Mike Walmsley to create a learning management system for recruiters. Mm. And it's white labeled so clients can have their own branding and colors and that sort of thing. And we can definitely give it to them out of the box with all of my content, all of Mike's content, and a number of other trainers as well. But we always encourage our clients to actually make it their own, create their own videos, upload their own unique content to the portal so that it is the exact message for their culture, for their marketplace. It's aligned to their values and so on. And over time, you know, they can keep the bits of my training or Mike's training that they like best. They can keep those elements in there. But it becomes more and more their own proprietary thing. We used Mike, Mark, but I just didn't think I should say so. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no. Podcast. yeah, no, we used Mike. Mike's amazing. We, yes. we love Mike. All so, right, yeah, his training and development was, was exceptional. During this episode, you heard Alex and John talk about their training and how that was one of the keys to their success in building a truly exceptional world-class business was that they had awesome training. They could take people from rookies and make them into successful, high-producing recruitment consultants and then develop them further into billing managers and then into senior managers. The platform that John and Elliot used to build their world-class learning and development system is one that I am able to offer you a free trial of. So this is essentially a done-for-you turnkey training platform. It's white-label product, so we can brand it for your specific business. What it does is it helps new recruiters get profitable quickly, cash flow positive in the shortest time possible. It also helps you increase the billings of your existing team members while significantly reducing the management time required for training development. So what you can do is... You can upload your own training videos, or you can use our ready-made training courses and modules. We have over 400 training resources. That's over 150 hours of video content from 40 different speakers at all levels, recruiter, manager, director. We can create custom courses and assign them to your team members. You can create career development plans, CPDs for each employee. There's an action tracker with automatic email reminders. There's even assessments. Again, these can be tailored but you'll be able to rigorously test new starters after their induction, which makes them work harder and learn more during that onboarding process. 
And there's a lot more to it, more than I can explain in this short commercial. So if you'd like to get a demo of this LMS platform, Learning Management System, and also see if you qualify for a free 14-day trial so you can log in and check out the content for yourself, then please reach out to me, Mark Whitby, and I will be happy to facilitate that for you. The easiest way to do that is just drop me an email, mark at recruitmentcoach.com. Let me know you're interested in the LMS learning management system, and we can take it from there. All the things that you're talking about are massively time-consuming to put in place and then to continue running. At what point did you guys stop billing and and more focus on running the business rather than running a desk? So year two, it was probably year three, was it? Year three? About year three. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult balance that, but you have to have people leading from the front on the sales side, right? So it's really important that when you step back, you know, you have the critical mass in the sales team, you have some exceptional people in there delivering exceptional things so they can show the way. Yeah, there was lots of things that we looked at. It's, it's a big decision to make, as John said. So yeah, we, we looked at lots of variables and I don't think there's one thing you say, that's the exact point. There's a number of things that you want working effectively before you make that move. Was there a, a trigger point like when we get X billings, you know, or, you know, Y GP per week, then that will allow one or both of us to? It was a case of gradually, you know, when we started, we were doing the IT, the marketing, the sales, the the, the financial yeah. management, the HR. Was there any HR? There probably wasn't any HR, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, the operational stuff, the administration, you know, and, and then when when we sold the business, I was doing a couple of hours a week just spending with the board, you know. So it's quite hard to step back as business owners. It's actually quite a challenging thing to do. And it's an interesting point, actually, because starting with the end in mind, as we did, starting with that focus on selling the business after within within kind of 10 years, gave us a really kind of laser-like focus on what we needed to do to, in order to achieve that. And so ultimately, we had to step back. You want to hold on to things maybe emotionally, but you know, we, we couldn't do that if we wanted to maximize value from the sale. So, you know, have, having that clarity of, of our clarity of our vision and clarity of what we want to achieve really, really does help in that sense. And, and also you, you don't want to hold back the people and their development in the business. So if you hang around too long in, in key roles, the key is that, you know, you can delegate that role and that responsibility to someone else because they're looking to make that next step. So I think if you get stuck in that zone where, effectively you're the sales manager and nobody sees you moving away from that role into a sales director role into an md role into a chairman-esque role whatever it might be i think there becomes a real blockage there and you're probably going to lose talent they don't see the business growing at a pace which is going to enable them to grow their own careers in an aligned fashion great insight absolutely listen i want to talk to you guys about what you're doing now but first can you just paint a picture of what it was like to conclude the the, the transaction when you guys sold your business so what what was that like i've got a photo of us actually when we got the uh the email through saying the money had dropped into the bank and we're we're stood outside weatherspoons in manchester doing a selfie together in the photo so it's not not the most glamorous place to kind of like <laughs> conclude <laughs> conclude a deal but it was i mean obviously look, it's, it's amazing it's amazing to kind of 
you know, you, you work towards something for 10 years, you know, and, and, and it's a lofty ambition to sell a recruitment business, you know, very small percentages of businesses sell. So to achieve it was was incredible. And it was euphoric. And it was, yeah, a really incredible moment. Or certainly my experience was you walk around for a few weeks, you know, a few inches higher and, you know, feeling on top of the world and stuff. And then, like anything, it kind of starts to become normal and then you think about the next steps in your journey, you know. So it was I mean, it was great. We both took quite different different paths after we sold the business because we I spent like two and a half years literally just kind of traveling the world and just sort of having fun and, and not really doing too much in the way of work. And and obviously I, and Alec Alex took a bit of a different different kind of route. He uh well, Alex <laughs> Alex, what did you do after the sale? I'm a family man. So, um, yeah, I, my, my wife and I moved to the countryside where we were closer to, to family and um, we, we had a baby. So that, that was a challenge. That was interesting. Not quite as cool as John's story. Congratulations. So, John, you're now in Barcelona, I think. Yeah, so I'm, I'm living in Barcelona and commuting, commuting to the UK. Why did you pick Barcelona? I've always loved the city. It's an easy commute to England. It's no sort of drama to get a plane over to the UK. I mean, I spend quite a bit of time in the UK, you know, obviously with work. My girlfriend is from South America, so obviously there's the there's a kind of language thing there. But I, I just really, to be honest, we both love the city and it's close enough to England to make the commute kind of really, uh, really manageable. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the benefits of kind of realising the sale of a business, right, is you can, gives you that kind of flexibility. Barcelona is amazing. One of my top picks. Recently, there's been it's it's kind of uh, yeah. There's obviously been lots of riots and stuff here recently with the with the yeah. independence movement, which has been uh, which right. has been exciting. So obviously, I was, I was really selling selling Barcelona to my girlfriend, you know, saying how what an amazing city it is to move to. And then for the last month, you look off my kind of balcony of my apartment, and there's like police chasing people around the streets and stuff oh like God. that. So um, <laughs> you know, it's been an interesting time to be in the city. But no, it, it. I mean, that aside, it's a great place to be. I love it. I bet I've got a few clients actually who are British. But running recruitment businesses based in Barcelona and other places in uh, in Spain. And then Alex, you bought a big mansion in the country, I think. Oh well, it's not a mansion. No, it's uh, yeah. Sean on on the other podcast described it as that, and I thought, where did he get that from? It's definitely not a mansion. Um, <laughs> okay. I, 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 I think he just he's got a little bit um, excited with his description. I, I live in a, look. A, <laughs> okay. I, I have a really nice house. Yes, in the countryside, and it um it, it's in the middle of nowhere, so it's quite nice. It, I love the city and I love the buzz of the city, but I'm a country boy at heart. So it's also nice to be able to get away and come back to the countryside. And, you know, it's quite nice to be able to raise my son here where we can um, we can take the dogs out and what have you. Yeah, I can relate to that. We lived in Edinburgh for, for years and years and recently moved out to just a little town 30 miles outside Edinburgh on the East Coast. Um, it's a, you know, a fishing town traditionally and we're right in the countryside and, uh, uh, it's great. It's 20 minutes on the train to the city, but, um, it's a much better lifestyle. So tell me about your latest venture, guys. So we both spent a bit of time, you know, we had, we had a nice, nice amount of time to kind of work out what we wanted to do next. And, you know, we both built up a lot of experience through the journey that we went through with, with liquid that we really want to use and share with, share with other people moving forward. So we're going to be launching a recruitment investment business in January called Rise Recruitment Capital. What we're going to be looking to do is invest in people with strong potential in exciting recruitment markets, both in terms of a financial investment and in terms of some really good kind of intensive support in terms of maximizing those businesses. We're not looking to invest in 
in a hundred businesses. You know, it's about investing in two or three businesses with kind of really exciting people, really exciting markets. You know, each year for the next kind of few years, and really just supporting those people in achieving their aspirations. That sounds amazing. So tell me if, for instance, I was going to refer someone to you or maybe someone's listening who wants to start or has recently started a recruitment business, what is your criteria? What are you kind of looking for? What's your ideal business that you would back? We like partnerships, Mark. So we've seen the value of that. And again, just going back to the very beginning of our journey, we, we had an aligned goal and we had shared values and we also had similar skills, but also complementary skills. And that was massively, massively beneficial to our journey. So we're very keen to speak to people who are um, partnerships. We're very keen to speak to people from a startup perspective who both individuals have a strong billing history, who can demonstrate they've got the ability to win and develop accounts. They can demonstrate evidence um, or evidence the fact that, you know, they, they've led, they've built and led high performance teams. So that's hiring, training and development, management and leadership. What we're looking for is partnerships of people who on their own, this is the paradox for us, they could go grow good recruitment businesses on their own. But with our support, both financially and from a strategic perspective, we would be able to work together as a team to build great recruitment businesses in a shorter time scale. So effectively, we're looking for great people who've got the sort of skill sets that I described from an early, from a startup perspective, who could grow, grow their own businesses, but really with our support and our guidance and our, and our backing as well financially, we will be able to support them to grow really, really great recruitment businesses and market leaders in their space. And then look, at the end of that journey, hopefully that's going to mean we can supercharge that growth for them with them supporting them. But at the end of that journey, it's going to mean they've got a, a recruitment business of real high value, which look, there's potential of options at the end that there might be an exit there. There might be an MBO. It might be a case of them sitting on the board for the rest of their life because they don't want to actually exit the business. But I think the key is to build an amazing world-class recruitment business of high value, which gives them multiple options at the end of the process with regards to what they do. And and in the process, you know, get all the financial rewards that come with that. Brilliant. John, anything you want to add? We built and sold Liquid Personal in 10 years. And, and I think with with a financial investment and knowing what we know now, we could have probably done that in about seven. So people have different aspirations. So it's, I guess it's important to say that just as we talked about with effective partnerships earlier on, kind of values and aspirations absolutely have to match. But if people want to build something special, you know, that's got real scale, um, either to continue to sort of run it, you know, turning over exceptional levels of profit or move towards a kind of exit. Both of those things are kind of kind of interesting. We're not those guys who are going to sit on 20 or 30 boards, you know, and just sort of go around re regurgitating the same information every uh, month to different people. We're going to get involved. And equally, we're not those guys who just kind of offer a back office kind of support system and allow people to basically just be billing managers in their own business. You know, we want to work with people who have got the aspiration to build their own company and grow and develop as business leaders through that journey. So this is about building recruitment businesses that stand on their own two feet and, you know, are highly, highly scalable. Just to add as well, obviously, we're, we're also interested in talking to individuals or, or partnerships that have early stage businesses. So going back to that previous point, if recruitment owners are in that position where it's an early stage business, they, they've got 
the seeds of something great, but maybe they've reached a point where they realise that they could probably do with some support with regards to how do I take this beyond 10 staff? Going back to that previous point we discussed earlier, again, th- those guys obviously are really, really sort of suitable with regards to the types of individuals that we're looking to talk to. Right, brilliant. So how can people reach out to you then if they're interested in getting the input and the value from you guys having having already done it yourselves? LinkedIn. They can, yeah, they can get in touch on uh, on, on LinkedIn, either Jonathan Coxon or Alex Elliott. I'll make sure all your uh, your links to to LinkedIn and other social platforms are are on the uh, on the website recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast. They'll be able to see the show notes from this episode, but also link to you guys. Is there any anywhere else that you would direct someone or is it LinkedIn is the best? We've actually made one investment already in, in um, pre-launch of the investment oh, business in, in an in a international IT sales recruiter based in the north of England. But we're actually launching the investment business in January. So the website's going to be up then. So uh, yeah, but for the meantime, link, LinkedIn is probably the best place to make initial contact. All right. Thank you very much, guys. This has been really, really interesting. I appreciate it. Really appreciate that. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for tuning in today for the Resilient Recruiter podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, you'll definitely want to check out the full show notes at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast. That is the website where you can see the links to the resources that were mentioned during today's episode, the recommended books, and lots of other goodies for you there as well. So go and check it out, www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening and be sure to tune in next week.